0: I got up to uh, start the service and I turned to my elder and said, so I forgot the message. You Ever forget your message? I mean, I mean, I don't mean up here, but I mean you left it in the office. So he said, well, good, don't use it. Maybe you'll quit sooner. <laughs> Doesn't work. <laughs> it's worse. That's what happened last night. I left it at home. Then I went back to my room afterwards and guess what? It was there. (laughs) Okay, let's get to work here. We're talking about Christianity and secular humanism. I have my towel with me. So I'm all set. Secular humanism. Uh, this is a kind of a discussion that uh, I think is not only interesting, but I have my particular opinions on that. So, before we begin, let's pray. Father, again, we ask for your mercies toward us through Christ. Thank you for yesterday. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the rest of the night and a new day to serve you in your kingdom. We ask for your protecting hand on all the children and adults and all of us as we meditate on your word as we play through the afternoon and strengthen us as we fellowship around your word for Jesus' sake, amen. Now, uh, like I said last night, this I think this camp is fantastic. I mean, the facilities. I'm used to real rustic stuff. That's the way I grew up with the bathroom, you know, half a mile down that way and so forth. And so... Since uh, I'm the speaker and uh, I get some benefits, and I really appreciate those benefits, I have to, um, I'm going to try to work for my keep. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm teaching all day. Uh, that is, if anybody wants to talk to me in the afternoon for whatever purposes or anything, I'll be glad to talk. That's my job. That's what I love to do is teach uh, Bible exposition, perhaps you have a passage of scripture you want to go to and so forth after lunch. I'm going to come back here. Um, lunch is at 12:30. Maybe around, starting around 1:30, I'll come back here. And uh, we can either show that videotape that I have uh, this afternoon. We can show it any afternoon or not at all. And perhaps uh, other parts of the afternoon, you uh, want to discuss some other parts of Scripture. That's fine with me. I'm here to do that kind of work. Also, uh, this. I consider this a class time, discussion time, which means feedback, which means I'll elicit comments and questions and provoke thoughts if I can do that. I know you have a discussion period afterwards, but we can do some discussing, at least some minimal discussing right now. Um, Some books, okay? Discussion on secular humanism. I don't like all the books that I have on secular humanism. Here's one on secular humanism, the most dangerous religion in America by Homer Duncan. It's very interesting. It's Christian oriented. I have some disagreements with the fella and I'll be going through some of that stuff, but at least it gets you thinking about what is secular humanism and the pervasion, how far secular human is uh, spread in our whole society, all facets of life, all levels of society, all spheres of life. Um, Another one by Hebden Taylor. Uh, Hebden Taylor is real prolific. I haven't seen any stuff lately from Hebden Taylor, but he taught at Dort College. I don't know where he is now. Uh, But anyway, this is uh, called The New Legality by Hebden Taylor. It's kind of uh, an overview of Dewey Veard. If you're familiar with uh, Herman Dewey Veard and some of those things, I kind of read that stuff. I like some of it and throw away some of it. But he deals with secular humanism in areas like uh, law and justice and politics and so forth. Um, Incidentally, I got my degree, my doctoral ministry degree, in preaching and politics. I was doing that stuff anyway in San Francisco, so I figured, why not try to get something out of it? So my mind for the past four years has been inundated with politics and relating it to the Bible and all kinds of things. So you'll be hearing a lot of that. Now, if you want a good study on the covenant, I found this one uh, last year, Covenant and Creation by Dumbrell. You can look at these afterwards. Study, Theology of the Old Testament Covenant. I found this fascinating. I don't know whether the guy's a covenant theologian. He probably is. He's uh, academic dean at Regent College, Vancouver, British Columbia. Now, not everybody that comes out of Region College is real uh, real reform, necessarily. But I have found this book fascinating. He goes through the covenants. Noah, uh, Adam and Noah and Abraham, blah, 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 all the way through. Brings out some very interesting insights. This is all related. What is secular humanism? First of all, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter four. Acts chapter four. Let's start reading with uh, just a couple of verses. Starting with verse seventeen. Acts four, seventeen. Now this uh, is the story of the The apostles who've been teaching, they were found teaching in the temple, and the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, didn't like what was going on, and so they bring them up on charges, and they try to find out what's going on. Acts 4.17, and this is what they say in the midst of the discussion on this healing that just happened. But that it spread no further, that is the message of this Jesus of Nazareth, that it spread no further among the people, Let us threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. Underlying the expression, in this name. Verse 18. And they called them and charged them not to speak at all nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to hearken unto you, rather unto God you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we saw and heard. Jump over to chapter 5. The the apostles didn't learn their lesson. They get into trouble again. Jump over to chapter 5. Jump down to verse 26. And now they're brought before the Sanhedrin again. 5.26 of Acts. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them, but without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the the council, literally the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. And behold, you fill Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than man, and so forth. It's that expression in verse 28. We strictly charge you not to teach in the name of Jesus. Let me go over some things on what secular humanism is, some basic definitions of what secular humanism is. Where did I put the chalk? The word secular, good Latin expression. Anybody know any Latin? Remember Latin classes? Remember when you had Latin classes? Basically, the idea of secular means uh, that which pertains to this age. That which pertains to this world or this age. Essentially, the secular part of secular humanism means that the world that we live in, the one you see, Uh, The age that we live in is sufficient. We don't need to go beyond. We don't need to call in the outside gods or the goddesses or anything of the sort. We can pretty much live with what we have in this world. And, of course, the idea of humanism, the emphasis is on the ism part. Uh, A humanist is not necessarily the same as humanism, okay? There can be Christian humanists, non-Christian humanists, but essentially when we're talking about humanism... It's the ism part. It's the idolatry of man. Uh, Paul defines it in Romans 1. It's the worship and service of the... What? Creature rather than the creator. Yeah. So it's uh, the ism part, the deification of man or the deification of God's, of man or God's creation. Of course, it's a rejection of God's creation. <coughs> Secular humanism is a religion. I had a discussion... Uh, another interview on a talk show a couple of weeks ago. It was in reference to the decision by Judge Hand. Are you familiar with Judge Hand? Judge in Louisiana district court there who decided that the textbooks taught secular the religion of secular humanism. And I thought he gave a, uh, a good defense there. This is the brief, as a matter of fact. Uh, since Donna works in a law firm and uh, one of our members is a lawyer herself, I can get all kinds of briefs. And this is the decision of the court. Now, since that time, Judge Hand has either rescinded it or hasn't put it into effect. But it's an excellent discussion on what is secular humanism. And the Supreme Court has defined, uh, has stated back in the case in 1962, that secular humanism is considered a religion. Well, in the course of this interview on Channel 7, uh, of course, all they could do was mock the fundamentalist viewpoint, mock the creationist viewpoint. And they just said, how can anybody believe that secular humanism is a religion? Of course not. It has to do with science and all this kind of stuff. Well, even the Supreme Court has denominated, has called secular humanism a religion. It hasn't gone into a whole lot of definition of what the nature of religion is, but has discussed it. Um, So if anybody wants to read uh, some little brief on Judge Hand's decision, there's that. Secular humanism, the religion... It's not the religion of the 20th century. Some people want to say it's the religion of the 20th century. I don't believe it is. I think it's the religion of man, period. I think the Bible's filled with secular humanism. I think the argument of the prophets was against secular humanism. I think the argument of Christ against the Pharisees was the argument against secular humanism. I think you see a real good dose and example of secular humanism in the scriptures. Now, normally when people define secular humanism like... uh, Dear Homer, they define secular humanism according to what the secular humanist society has said. Now, the secular humanist society is an actual um, society of people get together. They've come up with the secular humanist manifesto number two. They have number one and now number two. I have a whole lot of trouble with going to the secular humanists to ask them what a definition of secular humanism is. Now, if I want to know what they think secular humanism is, I can go to the secular humanists. But if I want to know what secular humanism is, I don't go to a secular humanist to find out what secular humanist is. I mean, I don't go to a, a diseased person to find out what is the nature of his disease and then take his definition and then uh, deal with it and try to treat his understanding of his disease. If I'm the doctor, I don't care what he thinks necessarily. I want to find out what he feels for sure. But I'll diagnose it and find out. Well, it's the Word of God that diagnoses what real secular humanism is. I think people do get a little bit deceived when they think that if I can get their definition of secular humanism, then I'll know what it is. No, the Bible tells us what secular humanism is. Secular humanists are those that deny a supreme being. The word secular is a doctrinal belief that basically excludes the belief in God as supreme being or future eternity. Now, that's what the secular humanist society says it is. I don't believe that's what secular humanism is. There are a lot of secular humanists running around that do believe in God. And they do believe in a future life and rewards in the afterlife. There are those that say that secular humanism, a secular humanist is one who believes in materiality or materialism. The worship of material substance whether it's boats or yachts or money or whatever, and they reject spirituality. I don't believe that's an accurate definition of secular humanism because there are plenty of secular humanists that do believe in spirituality and that reject materiality. The Apostle Paul talked about those individuals. There are those that talk about secular humanists. Uh, Secular humanism is that which rejects absolutes, the absolutes moral system I don't believe that's accurate either as Christians our our defense of the faith is not to teach that there are absolutes which people must follow it's God's words they must follow which is absolute but there's something relative about God's word too that's not the same as relativism either but the problem with the secular humanist is not that he has rejected absolutes and now as a relativist, he's rejected God's word. He's rejected God's law. That's the problem. We've got to get him back to God's word, not to absolutes as such. For the Christian absolutes as such don't exist. It's God's word that really does exist. So I want you to be careful about that. Another thing. Some people define secular humanism as being anti-theistic, therefore atheistic. Secular humanists are atheists. The communist or the Soviet society is a secular society. Legally, even politically, a secular society. Well, it's my personal opinion that I believe our system, our political system, is also a secular system, legally and politically. Not socially, not sociologically necessarily, not informally. We're basically a Christian nation. Quotes around the word Christian and nation. But politically, we're not a Christian nation. Legally, we're not. We're a secular society that believes in God. Big G or small g. Big and small g. God. There are those that define secular humanism as as that which rejects salvation. Salvation and it believes in something else. Secular humanists don't necessarily reject the notion of salvation. And the secular humanist is not someone who simply says that the state will save us as opposed to something else. No, there are plenty of secular humanists that don't like the state, that don't like the encroachment of civil government on everything. There's a lot of libertarians. You know what libertarians are, li- the libertarian party basically believes that hands off everything, laissez-faire government. That is, the government should have hands off absolutely everything or virtually everything. Secular humanists go for that. Uh, He mentions this as well, that secular humanists are those that believe in the inevitability of progress. Well, again, that's not an accurate definition. The Christian believes in the inevitability of progress and that's not the problem. It's the nature of that progress We want to progress, but it's not simply a progression in unbelief, it's a progression in faith in Christ. Secular humanism, this is my definition, is essentially the rejection of of the lordship of Jesus Christ. The rejection of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, it may not sound very profound, but let me give you some examples of this. Secular humanism is essentially the rejection of the lordship of Jesus Christ. That means that anybody that's not a Christian is a secular humanist, whether they go to church or not, whether they pray a dozen times or not. Turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, here is Paul's description of a pre-conversion condition prior to being saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. Wherefore, remember that once ye, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, Now, verse 12 is very important. Look at that. That you were at that time alienated from Christ or separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, that's what it means to be lost. There's a good definition of what it means to be lost. It encompasses all kinds of things. You can spend an hour just going through that. It's without Christ. It's separated from Christ outside the, the commonwealth, the, the community, the covenant community, or he's describing in reference to Old Testament Israel, but it's still outside the covenant community, the New Testament Israel for us. Strangers of the covenants, estranged from the covenant, if you will, Having no hope and without God. It's the word without God that I want to capitalize on. Without God is only one word in the original language there. And it means this. Right. It's the word atheist. That's without God. atheist An atheist is without God. Now, normally when you give a definition of what is an atheist, an atheist is one who denies the existence of a supreme being and there's a, there's a truth to that but for the apostle Paul to be an atheist meant more than just simply one who rejects a supreme being as a matter of fact Paul also argues there isn't anybody that rejects a supreme being it's which supreme being do you reject that's the key the atheist in Ephesians chapter 2 is the one who rejects Christ without Christ anybody outside of Christ is essentially the atheist. That's, pretty, that's a pretty tight definition. I mean, that, that cut, uh, describes a lot of people because not everybody's a Christian. You mean to tell me that everybody outside of Christ is an atheist? Well, if Jesus is God and Jesus is God's Son and Jesus did say, whoever does not honor the Son, what? Doesn't honor the Father? John chapter 5. It's a good one. When you're, I like to use that particular text when talking with Jehovah's Witnesses because they don't honor the son like they honor the father they're atheists in fact they're atheists if they don't honor the son and we want to demonstrate that you are an atheist and you can't fly into any arms of being a theist of some sort there's no hope in being a theist one who believes in God or a supreme being maybe of neighbors they believe in God believe in a supreme being and they're okay and they believe in moral absolutes they're still going to hell They have swallowed the line of secular humanism. Not because the secular humanist back in the 30s or back in the 19th century advocated it, but because that's the religion of man. That's what a real atheist is. It's the rejection, secular humanism is the rejection of Christ. It's the rejection of Christ, uh, the lordship of Christ, and the emphasis on the expression lordship there means his saving work. Lordship is his saving work, his saving or his atonement. Now, uh, I want to do this little thing at 4 o'clock on uh, a comparison of covenant theology and dispensationalism. Anybody wants to come then? Uh, And I think, uh, I grew up a dispensationalist, and dispensationalists are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are Christians, they are not enemies of Christ. But I do have a problem with some of the things that they teach, and I think they are bordering or playing with the notion of secular humanism. They have a little bit in their system, and maybe we who are covenant theologians have a little bit in our system too, which we got to get rid of. But in dispensationalism, you have a, an element of that secularizing. Uh, a book that I have studied that I thought was helpful was Daniel Fuller's book. Uh, Dispensationalism and Covenant Theology, Contrast or Continuum. Have you ever read that one? Never Never seen that? That was his doctoral dissertation 30 years ago. He finally got it in printed form. And it's an exposition of Romans chapter 10 and Galatians 3 plus other things. Now, Dan Fuller is an evangelical. He's not necessarily Reformed. But I think he puts his finger right on the proper understanding of Romans 10. And we're going to get to that in a minute, as well as Galatians. And he mentioned a phrase in there that stuck with me, and that is secularizing the Bible or secularizing the covenant. So often people, Bible believers, secularize the covenant or secularize God's word. Turn to Romans chapter 10. I don't agree with everything Dan says in his book. He's a premillennialist. So I don't agree with his conclusions, but he has a very interesting analysis of Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, the antidote to secularizing the scriptures. Uh, Incidentally, if you have any questions, if I'm going too fast, or too slow, or you're too bored, or maybe I'm not clear enough, raise your hand, stop me, and I'll see if I can answer Romans chapter 10, to secularize the word of God. Now, again. I don't think any of us, too many of us, would be persuaded if a secular humanist actually came up and started preaching or teaching us. You know, once we know he's a secular humanist, we have our guard up and we're ready to go to Dukes with this fellow. So I want to deal more with the subtle aspect of secular humanism that creeps in to Christianity itself. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone that believes. Now, uh, I have a whole series of lectures just on that one verse, and I imagine some of you ministers do too. I think it's a fantastic text. And it strikes at the very heart of secular humanism, secularizing the Bible, secularizing God's Word, secularizing the atoning work of Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Let me give you a brief analysis of that. The discussion there in that part of Romans 10, last part of chapter 9 into chapter 10, actually the whole discussion in the book of Romans primarily focuses on what is the nature of righteousness? How is a man righteous before God? Well, there's two kinds of righteousness that he's talking about. There's two opinions about it. One's right and one's wrong. In chapter 9 and 10, he gets down to there is a righteousness... That these individuals, that these Jews sought after was a wrong kind of righteousness. It will not save, it will destroy. But there's a right kind of righteousness which we have to seek after. Verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my supplication to God is for them, this is Israel, that they may be saved. Verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now here he's talking about the Jews. And it may have been been almost uh, the Judaizers, and the Judaizers were the Christian Jews. That is, they really hadn't seen the full implications of Christ. They liked the idea that Jesus is Christ, and they've accepted that, but they're still back with their old Judaism, not the Old Testament, but with Judaism. There's a difference between Judaism and the Old Testament, okay? They have a zeal for God, an interest in God. Now, I I think that's interesting in the light of when we talk about total depravity. Total depravity, scripturally, doesn't mean you hate God. In fact, you do hate the living and true God, but sometimes this this hatred of the living and true God exhibits itself in terms of a zeal for God. Even a zeal for God. He describes those those people, those Jews, as having a zeal for God. And he recognizes that people can have a zeal for God. Now, he points out that's the wrong kind of zeal. That's that's what's at stake here. It's the wrong kind of zeal. Verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Chapter 2, he describes not only a zeal for God, but they have a zeal for the law of God. The Old Testament law, as a matter of fact. They love the law. They meditate upon the law. They live by the law. As a matter of fact, they love the law so much that they believe that they will have salvation by the keeping of that law. That shows you their commitment to the law. What is your commitment to God's law? They're willing to stake their eternal life on that law. They're secularists, too. They're going to hell for that. And it gives you the reason. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. The hot. Not according to knowledge. That is, if they only knew a few more Bible verses. If only they knew a little more Scripture. He's not using the word knowledge there in the sense of having to know more texts of Scripture. You know, Psalm 119 talks about, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And for years I thought that that meant memorizing Bible verses because you had to memorize that Bible verse. And every time you had to memorize a Bible verse, that was the Bible verse that you went to to teach you how to memorize Bible verses. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It's not talking about Bible memorization. Thy word have I hid in my heart is not memorizing Bible verses. It's good to memorize Bible verses. You should memorize Bible verses, but don't make hiding God's word in your heart Equivalent to Bible memorization. Again, a lot of people will know a lot of Scripture and will still go to hell for it because they haven't seen, they haven't a zeal for God according to knowledge, not Bible memorization. I'm not knocking Bible memorization. It's the context of that hiding, which means a living out that word. Yeah? I just wanted to share with you about going to the fair on the 4th of July. It was dedicated to... Uh, George went over there and looked at it and said, It is <laughs> required uh, that you trust in the Supreme Being or another Supreme Being. Just like that. Don't get me started on Freemasonry. Yeah. That caused a stink in our church and split it. Yeah. Over Freemasonry. It was, it was, a, it was a stupid thing. And I don't mean stupid intellectually, I mean spiritually stupid. Uh, I think Freemasonry is, among others, the epitome of uh, secular humanism. Uh, right across the street, you come, come to San Francisco and visit us. We'd love to have you visit. Across the street is the Shrine. <laughs> Shriners. There's the Shriners, the Northern California headquarters for the Shrine. And the Shrine, again, is the 33rd degree of Freemasonry and all this other stuff. Uh, I'm uh, you know a few years ago Freemasons what are they like Boy Scouts that's all you know Baden Powell founded the Boy Scouts was a Mason You know, our revolutionary fathers were Freemasons Benjamin Franklin was inducted into the French Freemasonry as well as the American Freemasonry by uh, Voltaire the French Revolution was conducted by the Freemasons I mean we're talking about secular humanism the American Revolution and the French Revolution I don't think uh, I think they're Tweedledee and Tweedledum uh, there was a lot of secular humanism going on, uh, despite all their talk about God. I think the, the Freemasons back in the 18th century, though, were a little, bit Christianori- little more Christian-oriented than they are nowadays. But this, this uh, the Shrine, uh, the Shriners uh, that we have across the street from our church, uh, is a museum as well. So it has all the history of uh, the Freemasonry going back to 17- modern Freemasonry started in 1770. So don't get me started. There we go. Uh, back in 1717 and the king of England is the grand master and World War I was a fight between the lodges. You didn't know that, did you? I don't know whether that's true, but that is what people say. <laughs> I mean, they talk about it because all those fellas, you know, from the Kaiser to the English, they were all members of the, of the lodge and they all fought each other anyway. So anyway, that's, that is a conspiracy theory that uh, is always fun to study those things. Getting back to Romans chapter 10. Thanks, Lon. <laughs> Talk to you later about that one. Uh, verse 3, being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own, that's a 2nd humanist, they did not subject or come under or submit themselves to the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Now, the controversy is always over... What do you mean by end? Christ is the end. Well, I think uh, when you, it's good to look at a dictionary or a Greek lexicon or maybe an English dictionary and look up a word and find out what it means. It's nice to do that, but remember, the lexicon is not your final standard of faith and practice. God's Word is your final standard of faith and practice. And it's how a word is used in the context of the, that ultimately determines its meaning, okay? You may use a lexicon, but remember, it's the context I- itself. And the contrast, again, the contrast that Paul's dealing with is between the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees versus the righteousness which is by faith in Christ. Two different kinds of righteousness. Two different laws. The law of works, he says in Galatians Romans 3, the law of works, or the law of faith. Okay, you've got two different laws. Actually, you've got the same text. You can look at the same text and come up with two different law systems altogether. And depending on how you look at those that Ten Commandments, for example, will determine life or death, eternal life or eternal death. And Christ is the end. And, and, and I'll contend that the expression end is referring back to the scribes and the Pharisees. He's the end to righteousness. He's the end to law. You see, the Jews believed in the law as an end in itself. Obedience as such. Another philosopher that I always like to contend with, a German philosopher, his name was Immanuel Kant. Oh, what a name. Immanuel Kant. <laughs> Immanuel Kant, was, he was a Lutheran. He was a pietist. I mean, he was a, had a Christian upbringing and all that other stuff, but he wanted to create a moral system, the, uh, the, moral, the, the moral imperative uh, The the moral law based not upon God's Word. He may have believed God's Word, but he believed God's Word was based upon this, this, this moral imperative, this end in itself. And the Apostle Paul comes along and says, no, Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law as an end in itself. Christ is the end of righteousness as an end in itself. Christ is the end of the law. And again, when it talks about Christ, it's not simply talking about Christ as the second person of the Trinity. Granted, it's Christ in his atoning and saving work. Remember that. A lot of people will believe that Christ is the end of the law and not realize that this is referring to Christ in his saving work. Christ is the end of the law. So when I look at the law, I must look at its end. What is the end of the law? It's Christ. Christ is the end of the law. Now, that doesn't mean you don't obey God's word, but it means you don't obey God's word without Christ. You don't obey God's word without Christ. You obey God's word in Christ. That's the only way to obey God's word. When the Apostle Paul offered God's law, he didn't simply say, well, just as long as you have God's law, that's what counts. Well, you may not have Christ, but just as long as we advocate God's law. Well, again, there is some benefit. There's some benefit. J. Jehu experienced some blessing from God by obeying his word. His next uh, three four sons, they, con- they continued to live and be kings. After that, they were cut off and wiped out. There is no eternal benefit in obeying no eternal benefit in obeying God's law. We don't offer God's law as such. We offer God's law in Christ. And that makes all the difference. The world's a difference. And that's why in the Old Testament, when it talks about obeying the law, it's talking about obeying Christ, in fact. Because we've got to see that Old Testament in Christ. We've got to see Abraham in Christ so often we want to look at the Old Testament outside of Christ. I was listening to a, a, a lady preacher on TV. Forget her name. And uh, she's the up-and-coming lady preacher on TV. And she was giving a Bible lecture on Joseph. And Joseph had a dream. You have a dream? God has a dream for you. <laughs> You, too, can have this dream. If you follow what Joseph had. and Joseph had all these conflicts, all these roadblocks to his dream, but he interpreted this fellow's dream. He interpreted Pharaoh's dream. He interpreted these other dreams. You see, when he put the other people's dreams before his dream, God began to bring his dream fulfillment. What's the message of Joseph about? It's the message that God has a dream for you. You have a dream, too. You just live up to that dream, and God will take care of you. Now, there's all kinds of religious language in that, spiritualizing language in that, but that's to secularize the text. The story of Joseph is not the story about his dreams. There's a lot of things about Joseph's story, but we can secularize those stories. Still, the story of Joseph is about Christ and it's a saving work. And that's sometimes real tough to see that. That's because of the sinfulness of our hearts. Recommendation again. Uh, I like a series of books uh, by S.G. de DeGraff called Promise and Deliverance. Now, I'm sure most of you have have heard of that. Four-volume set, Promise and Deliverance. And, And the point of his work is to take the stories of the Bible, like Joseph and whatever else, and see them in the light of Christ as Christian stories, not moral stories. I find it very interesting. I like to talk to children. I like to try to take all the theological things that I learned in seminary and try to get it across to a kid and that rarely works but I try and so often I find it easy to reduce the Bible stories to messages of doing good and being nice and mommy and daddy are wonderful and obeying your parents and that's the story that's what God wants you to know boy if that's if that's the end of the message of teaching children we're teaching secularism you know when the apostle in Ephesians chapter 6 said children obey your parents he said children obey your parents what? Boy, that makes all the difference in the world. We don't advocate. I don't teach my children. You're not to teach your children. Obey your parents and be good. Period. We teach them in the Lord. We teach them they must do this in Christ. They must do this in faith. That's simply to teach the covenant for what the covenant really is. There's the real antidote to secularizing. Is to teach the covenant relationship. It's a relationship of salvation. It's a relationship of hope. Not presumption, but hope um, let me move on here i 'm not going to go i 'm not going to finish up with this Romans ten passage. I have an example here in uh, a book that i've been studying on Jewish missions. I really like and extremely intrigued with the issue of Jewish missions um, i wasn 't so uh, Concerned about it years ago but I guess the, uh, the more I get into the pastor the more I'm interested in it I mean Jews for Jesus for example is headquartered in San Francisco they're just down the street from us we haven't talked to each other yet <laughs> we've got to get along with each other but what I'm chagrined about and upset about is a lot of this Jewish evangelism turns out to be a, Christianized sec- a Christian secular humanism a, 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 a baptized secularizing and that the message of Christ in dealing with uh, unbelieving Jews is secularized. Uh, there is a book. It's called Evangelicals and Jews in an Age of Pluralism. It's a dialogue. It was. It took place at Trinity Evangelical Theological Seminary in Illinois, uh, and evangelicals, and uh, you would know some of them, and then Jews, and they have this discussion and various subjects. It's a fascinating book. It's about four. It's a four-year-old publication now. After getting through reading that, it was almost like reading the Gospels all over again. The fight Jesus has with the Pharisees is a fight over secular humanism. Whose righteousness reigns? What, what righteousness saves? Uh, and there's one chapter there. Let me write this down, too. It's a chapter. Let me briefly analyze this. It was a chapter on... Mission Mission to the Jews by a gal named Blue Greenberg Think of Blue Green Blue Greenberg She's a she's a Jewish uh, lady and she's critiquing the evangelical approach This was done at an evangelical seminary like I said There's a difference between proselytizing proselyte and a witness uh, she doesn't like to be proselytized, but she doesn't mind being witness to. This is how her distinction. Incidentally, the word proselyte... Some people get scared with the word proselyte. We want a proselyte. It's used in the Old Testament. The Septuagint uses the word proselyte. Simply, the word basically means those that come in. It was the stranger, not the Jew, who was the proselyte. So you have proselyting in the Old Testament. But she doesn't like the notion of proselyting because proselyting means by definition, Christian proselytizing and mission is that redemption and salvation come only through Jesus Christ, that Christ died for human sin, that Christianity superseded Judaism. She objects to that. Uh, For her being a Jew is being a chosen one, the elect. Divine election is not in Christ. Now, I can understand Paul you now, coming out of that secular, Jewish secular background, emphasizing election in Christ. Election in Christ. Chosen in Him. The he constantly goes over that. The expression in Christ or in Him or in whom, however it's phrased, is just replete through the epistles of Paul because he wants to give us a Christological, a Christian view of election. Believing in predestination you now doesn't make a Calvinist. Calvin's whole point was it was in Christ. That's the difference. Any other kind of predestination turns out to be a fatalism. Keep going here. Now, I am going to do a little bit reading. Um, I know it's tough to listen to someone while he reads, but try to bear with me. She reacts to this proselytizing because whenever the good news of the gospel of Jesus came to town, it turned out to be the bad news for the Jews. She says, whenever Christian devotion was at its highest, anti-Semitism was also at its highest. Now, when she thinks of anti-Semitism, she's not thinking exclusively of the Holocaust, persecuting the Jews. So far as she's concerned, the mention of Christ and the advocating of Christ is anti-Semitism. I was in another discussion at San Francisco State, and we were discussing about abortion and all this other stuff, and the emphasis of my approach was, uh, you have to come to Christ, and Christ is the solution to... Crisis pregnancies, and the professor asked me the question: Do you believe everybody should be a Christian? Oh, no. The, phrase, the way he phrased it was this: Do you believe there should be no other religions? And I said, Right. I don't think there should be any other religions. I think everybody ought to be a Christian. <gasps> and the gasp goes through the whole thing. <laughs> and of course the response to that is, what are you going to do kill all the rest no 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 you don't force them to become Christians you persuade them the spirit of God works in their hearts and so forth and that kind of oh that's what you mean by that so we got done that discussion and uh, the the following Saturday uh, we do our demonstrating at the local abortion clinic along comes one of the gals that was at the the lecture and uh, we nodded at each other you know we're enemies you see we're on the other side of the fence and so she I nodded and then she came up to me and I thought, maybe oh, she's going to thank me or whatever? She smiled. <laughs> and she said to me real clear and plain, I've never heard such anti-Semitic, racist bigotry in all my life. And she walked into the clinic and I said, well, thank you. <laughs> and uh, the people I was picketing with, they said, what did you say to her about her What did you do? And I hadn't said anything about Jewish people or anything of the sort. I just simply preached Christ. But she caught the point. You make Christ central. I mean, that's the whole point of 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify Jesus as Lord. And you will be denominated anti-Semitic. And you're not anti-Semitic in the truest sense of the term. Well, she goes on. She calls the normative event of history is the Holocaust. We have a Holocaust, which is normative too you know. The Holocaust. And there's two holocausts. Remember the word holocaust means what? The word itself means the burnt offering. Perfectly biblical word, just like proselyte. We have a Holocaust that we offer in exchange for all other holocausts. You phrase it that way. No, the Holocaust of the 40s, the Holocaust of the Nazis is nothing. That's no salvation. Wow, you'll get it. Watch out. It's the Holocaust of Christ. If the Jews, she says, after the Holocaust, can any well-meaning Christian look into my eyes and make the claim? The call for a kind of spiritual final solution? You dare say that I become a Christian? What's the difference between you and the Nazis? They did it physically. You're doing it spiritually. That's called spiritual rape, she says. If the Jews didn't accept Christianity after the destruction of Jerusalem, and if they didn't accept Christianity after the Holocaust, do you think they're going to get converted by Christ by you Christians witnessing? Of course not. She goes on to say this. Two cataclysmic events, the destruction of Jerusalem and the Holocaust, have witnessed and established forever the stiff-neckedness of this people. They're proselytizing which means that Christians ought not to ask Jews to believe that Christ is the only way. Okay? You want to get along with Jewish Jewish people? That's the way. Number two, that Christian witness must be different. It means that Christians are going to have to realize that mission or witness must be of God, not of Christ. She goes on. The Christian is going to have to make a sacrifice in his witness. His salvation, or his witness, must not deny the Jewish salvation or the Jewish validity. The difference, then, between proselytizing and witnessing is that Christ is not the only means of salvation open to human beings. God is the only means. Now, again, what I saw interesting about this whole dialogue was, uh, this wasn't just Jews versus Christians. You could put Buddhists in there. You could put Hindus in there. You could put anybody in there versus Christians. We're just taking the paradigm of uh, of this Jewish evangelism here. This is the way a Baha'i would think of the same thing. You're You're offending him. She goes on. This is a major and minor change at one and the same time. Major because it challenges the absolute model, the absolutist model of Christian mission. You guys have an absolutist model of Christian mission. You want people to drop their faith Get rid of it and accept Jesus. How arrogant. It is major. It's it's minor change, but a major change. It's major because it allows Christians or it doesn't allow Christians to blur the lines between God and the Son of God. See, the Jews keep a clear distinction between God and the Son of God. You want to believe in the Son of God? Fine. Don't blur it. When you start talking about Jesus is God, the God, and so forth, you blurred it and, and, and messed it up. The Jews keep a fine distinction between God and the Son of God. Now, lastly, most important, she says, it is simply a minor change because all the rest of Christian theology, Jesus' teaching, his life, his resurrection, can stand. The whole of Christianity will not topple Boy, that's, there's the subtlety of Satan's argument. Just keep Christ out of it. Or, this is the way it's normally phrased keep Christ in Christmas. <laughs> keep him there. No one will argue with you about that. Just as long as he's confined to his territory, the whole of the Christianity will not topple, its tenets will barely be altered its faithful will hardly be shattered. What assurance do we have of this? We can point to the traditions that gave up this conversionary ghost and had still survived. Example, Roman Catholicism, for which ecumenism renewed itself rather than diminished in its strength. Our second proof comes from Rabbinic Judaism, it was vir- proselytizing, was virtually eliminated from the first century Jewish commonwealth. And yet this commonwealth continues to thrive and so forth. There is the lie of Satan. Let's finish up with Acts chapter 5. Acts 5 verse 28. All she's saying here, and there was another text, another chapter in there, where the rabbi believed in the new birth. You need to be born again. He's not evangelical, he's Jewish. You need to be born again. There's no problem with being born again. They can advocate the new birth process. But this, connecting it with Christ makes a whole different world out of it. Just keep it apart from Christ and you will make it acceptable to everybody. But here's, here's secular humanism in, in, in the book of Acts, Acts 5, 28. And the high priest asked them, saying, we strictly charge you." Not to teach in this name. Behold, you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood on us. There it is. They don't mind teaching. They don't mind preaching. They don't mind worship. They don't mind talking about God. They don't mind bringing in the Bible. They don't mind uh, prayer. We'll, talk, we'll have prayer in the public school. Uh, they don't mind talking about morality and do-goodism. Just not in Christ. Just not for Christ. Now, to us, that's a whole world of difference. And so we've got to make that message very pointedly in Christ. A secular humanist can believe in God. He can even claim that he believes in the God of the Bible. But it's when he leaves Christ out. or it's, And I'm not saying denying Christ. I mean just ignoring Christ. When he just leaves Christ out, that's all the secular humanist was. That's all the devil wants you to do. He doesn't mind whether you love God, just not with all your heart, soul, might, and mind. I mean, come on. Who's going to ever do that? Uh, And love your neighbor. That's good. We'll do that one until we're blue. Now, lastly, what can we do? Well, I have a whole number of things, and I'm just going to give you some brief things. What can we do to combat secular humanism? Well, first of all, personally... We've got to really believe the concept of the covenant. This is why covenant theology is so vital to America. And I'm not talking to like um, uh, Jerry Fuller or anything. It's it's covenant theology. It's not theology as some kind of a heady thing. It's really believing in that covenant that God established with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are our fathers. My kid's father, forefathers, not not Abraham Lincoln, but Abraham in the Old Testament. Isaac and Jacob. Is to really understand the nature of the covenant. To teach our children that they are members of the covenant. That they are members of the covenant. They are. They have to believe in that covenant. Work out that covenant. Rejoice in that covenant. They're a blessing to the kids in the neighborhood. As a matter of fact, they've got to realize that the kids have to be self-conscious about that covenant, their covenant relationship. If you have a business, I believe that if you are a Christian and you establish a business, it must be a Christian business. I don't believe a Christian has the right to establish a business that's not Christ-centered. Now, that doesn't mean you have to preach. That doesn't mean you have to have a Bible verse on the walls, nor does it mean you have to pipe in uh, Dick, Pierce, Dick, Anthony, and Bill Pierce music into your uh, restaurant or anything. It'd be nice to do that, some good music. Bach is okay. Thank you. Uh, but I don't believe a Christian could establish a business now you may be a Christian in a business in a business you may be in the the kind of job you have again a lot of people that just are in a non-Christian organization it's not necessarily an anti-Christian organization okay you work at Lucky's or Safeway there's nothing inherently wrong working with Lucky's and Safeway but you better make sure that they don't inhibit your witness for Christ they have no right to do that and we're going to talk about Christian rights uh, I think tomorrow They have no right to do that. If you're going to sign up and join an organization, they have no right to curtail your worship on the Lord's Day and keeping the whole Lord's Day holy. They haven't got a right to do that. And for you to say, well, it's the job or the boss wants me to do it, I think it's the fall into secular humanism or an element of it. Now, that's one thing on the personal level, and there's some other things maybe you want to discuss later on. And then lastly, publicly, uh, again, it's my opinion that our Constitution and I had to do a lot of constitutional studies, is essentially a secular humanist document. It's not a Christian document. It has Christian elements in it? Thank God for that. But Article Six of the Constitution reminds us that religion should not be a test of office. Well, I don't think anybody's religion should be a test of office. I do think that the Christian faith should be a test for office. Absolutely. You want to call that a religion? Fine. I have no problems with that. But I don't think that's right, simply to have a constitution as such. Now, maybe those men, maybe the majority of them were so-called believers and Christians and so forth, but it is not a Christian. Politically, legally, it's not a Christian document. It is basically a secular document. And ever since 1947, the Supreme Court has been carrying that through. Ever since those decisions in 1947, uh, I forget the justice's name. Anyway, uh, he has been carrying through the logical consequences of our founding fathers. The Mayflower Compact, which is a Christian document, is not a legal document in the United States. The Declaration of Independence is not a legal document in the United States. because It's not a Christian document either, as a matter of fact. The Constitution says that it is the supreme law, Article 6 again, says it is the supreme law of the land on which all controversies are to be judged at all levels of society. It is the supreme law of the land. I'm going to argue with that. And say no, the word of God is the supreme standard of faith and practice. Uh, Leonard mentioned to me earlier. You're going to say anything about lawyers? Boy, I have a special heart for lawyers, uh, Christian lawyers too. And it's so easy for for Christian lawyers to just succumb to the secular humanism. They're trained in it. They're taught the whole thing. They're beaten over the head with this uh, in their schools. Hopefully not in the Christian law schools. There's only one Christian law school that I know of. Two. Two. One in Southern California, and one back at. Uh, Pat Robertson's place. Secular humanism means the rejection of Christ. We have to be very careful. Write your congressman. I'll say this. Don't waste your time writing non-Christian congressmen unless you want to witness to them. Write your Christian congressman. I have a a bone of contention with Everett Koop. Dr. Koop is a Christian, born-again Bible believer. I know him. um, I think he's compromising the faith. Uh, it's not what he says. I don't object to what he says. It's what's left out. He said on television, brightly and clearly, when he was asked about God's law and aids and judgment and so forth, I don't have the luxury to answer that in this office. Pooh, you don't have the luxury. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ before you belong to the president or anybody else. And before you belong to your employer, you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let them curtail that witness at all. Let's pray. Father, make us aware of the the subtlety of Satan and how he would like to simply mollify the the message of Christ. Simply tone it down. We pray that the the confession of the apostle would be our confession, that Jesus is Lord of all, and that in all things Christ must have the preeminence. May we not be deceived on the public level, let alone in the private level, that we can get away with Christ, that we can do away with Christ even in a little area, that we don't have the luxury in our jobs or the luxury at home to bring up Christ. We don't have the luxury not to, Lord. And give us the boldness to live for him. For Jesus' sake, amen.